Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. How y'all doing out there? I'm excited. This is my first time here in the morning preaching, so... Welcome. And um, I did want to uh, first acknowledge something else. Uh, This month, uh, as we're wrapping up February, is still Black History Month. Amen. Yeah. And um, one of the things uh, why we celebrate Black History Month is to be a corrective of history, of false narratives. That's why it was created. And ultimately, that relates to the idea of us being made in the image of God. Because any narratives that try to diminish that in a group of people are things that ultimately God opposes. Uh, We have a resource. uh, In addition to being teaching pastor here, I'm also uh, work with a ministry called Our Daily Bread. Y'all might remember the little booklets that uh, you may have seen uh, growing up. And uh, we have a new resource we just um, released this year called On the Shoulders of Giants. It's a 28-day devotional uh, booklet that highlights how different folks in Black history have touched uh, the lives of people and helped them become closer to God. I actually have an article in here myself uh, written in, so they'll be up on the bar uh, upstairs. You can grab one on your way out. Well, the reality is that history is not something that just... um, is behind us, but it's something we're living in right now. And uh, many of us saw and watched uh, really in in horror as uh, Russia invaded Ukraine this week. And just to put this in perspective, uh, this is the uh, first time that another state in Europe has invaded a country since World War II on a scale like this. Uh, It's something that um, is really tragic to watch. So far, we're looking at over 300,000 people who are displaced and moving to trying to find refuge. Um, I have friends who know folks who serve as missionaries over there. And it's, I mean, they're literally fighting for the very existence of their country. And so I wanted to start off by just praying uh, for Ukraine and uh, just for what's happening this week. Let's uh, join me in prayer. God in heaven... We thank you that you care about uh, our lives and all of who we are, not just the spiritual components, but the physical. And Lord, as we um, just join in solidarity with the people of Ukraine and just who uh, just want to live in peace, uh, Lord, we pray that uh, the aggressive attacks uh, against their country would stop. We pray uh, even that as uh, plans are made right now, now and we're announced today for there to be a meeting, God, that there would be uh, peace. Uh, We pray for protection of the children uh, and the families, the elderly, and those who are often just victims of war. And uh, God, we also pray that you would um, allow the international community to continue to stand in one voice uh, to be um, opposed to uh, this type of aggression and, Lord, to stand for justice, because without justice, there can be no peace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
and amen. Well, we are continuing uh, in our series in Romans, and it's interesting because Sunday is kind of an interesting time, right? Because we, many, for many of us, tomorrow means going back to work. And by that silence, I, you know, can feel the vibes of like, why'd you have to bring it up, though? I still had like, you know, a few more hours um, not to worry about it. And in fact, I can understand some of that apprehension because we live in a very unique space in the history of the world when it comes to work. Uh, I was just looking up some statistics this week and check this out. Americans work more hours and take less vacations than any nation in the world. Work more hours a week and take less vacations than any nation in the world. Now, that would be bad enough, but we're here in New York City. And statistics show that New Yorkers spend more time commuting and working than any other people in any city in America. So we live in the city, in the country of workaholics. Amen. But not only that, here's, and, and so it should probably be of no surprise when we see those statistics that 55% of workers get their identity from their job. Oftentimes, you might be in a social gathering, a setting, and you meet your, introduce yourself, and the first question is, what do you do? Because for many of us, what we do is equivalent to who we are. And here's the challenge that that creates. There was a lot of challenges between being overworked and anxious and stressed. But our addiction to work opposes relying on faith. That one of the impacts of this addiction to work is it actually opposes relying on faith. And so the question before us today is, is your faith shaping your view of work or is work shaping your view of faith? That is the challenge and the question. And, and, and the cultural pressures upon us would suggest that our, 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 oftentimes our sense of, of work has shapes our, even our identity of how we relate to God. God becomes the CEO of the world, our boss. And we look at ourselves as in relationship to our success or not with them. And, and there was a cautionary tale about this aspect and this addiction to work um, that has recently continued to make the rounds. Remember y'all, remember WeWork? You know, WeWork, right? And WeWork was this, you know, kind of innovative. It was like working at Starbucks, basically, was the vibe that they were trying to create. And it blew up and it was just incredibly successful. And at one point valued at $48 billion, a company that created opportunities for people to work um, in shared spaces. But the reality is the vision of WeWork, as folks found out, was a lot, a lot more expansive than just kind of like, oh, I got cucumber water when I go to work. It was actually more detailed than that. And in fact, the uh, former uh, president and founder, Adam Newman, he created We Live, where folks actually, the same company owned apartments. We Grow, where the folks actually had gyms. He had plans for We Sail and We Bank. 
It was like anything that you do in life, we're going to put we on it, but connecting it and tying it to this idea of work. He wanted work to completely consume us 365 uh, days a year. So the question uh, in front of us is, do we get our identity from our work or from our faith? Are we justified by work or by faith is how one could put it. And here's the challenge. As long as we, no matter how subconsciously think that we have contributed, contributed something to salvation, we will not put God on as high of a plane as we should. How could we? Because we ourselves will loom so large that he seems small. And we will not worship with the absolute sense of humility, dependence, and thanksgiving that always marks the best worship because we will think that we had a lot to do with it. So instead of we work, I want to present to you we believe as a way to orient our lives 365 days a year. Because the more that we identify ourselves by our work and the less by faith, the closer we come to our own collapses. And actually, you can look at WeWork to see that because it collapsed upon itself in that way. And this is why Romans is good news for everyone. Because Paul is writing this in a setting very similar to our own. The setting is Rome, a society that was on its grind. It saw itself in Julius Caesar as its emperor uh, as the most expansive, most highly you know, developed pinnacle of civilization ever. And so Paul is writing to both saints and sinners in Rome with one core message. You're addicted to work and your own self-justification is leading you further from God. And this is still a challenge for us today. We can still be addicted to this sense of work. So I'm going to, so, so, so to this morning, this is going to be like a re- rehab recovery intervention for us. And, and, and I'll be the first to admit, and I'll start. Hi, I'm Rasul, and I'm a workaholic. Thank you, thank you, thank you for uh, indulging. And so we're going to look at how we can choose faith over work in order to be free from that addiction. Anybody want to be free from the addiction of overworking? Anybody here with me? Okay, great. Thank, thank you. I'm not by myself. So we're going to jump to verse 4 in, in Romans chapter 4. And Paul just cuts right to the chase. Listen to what he says. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So as he explains this aspect and this orientation of God, he starts off by saying, look, to the one that works, like, I'm not, your employer, you don't think like, oh, at the end of the work week, like on Friday, you go, oh, thank you so much, oh, benevolent one, for giving me a check for the last 40 hours, 50 hours that I did. No, you're like, where my check? <laughs> if that thing don't hit the direct deposit <laughs> by a certain amount of time, we're making some phone calls because it's what is due us. And one of the reasons why we choose work over faith is because we can boast, I did that. Look at what I did. The myth that we can work hard enough to be good enough without God or anyone else strokes our incredibly large egos. 
to be able to say, I, 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 I pulled myself by my own bootstraps. I created this thing and I have this relationship. Look at me. We can say, look at what I did. And the thing is, in the work world, it does make sense to want to get attribution for things that you did. But it doesn't work like that spiritually. Because ultimately, what is good enough for God? What is enough work on our resume to say, yeah, God is like, I'm impressed. Just come on in. (laughs) If our confidence rests in ourselves, then we will find ourselves with no good foundation on which to stand during hardship. Because what if we mess up? You see, faith that often rests in a promise flies in the face of what is natural and normal. A faith that says it's not about what I accomplish, but who I believe in. That goes against the entire cultural pressure of our society that says, no, you are what you do. And so look at what Paul goes on to say in verse five, right? So he says, look, if it's, you know, the person who work is due, it's like, this is, I'm due my, my reward. Give me my wages. Now, he says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The contrast that Paul draws here is that, hey, to the one who is not justified by what they do, but by what they believe, that, that act is counted as righteousness. We're going to get more into that phrase a little bit further on. But here's the basic bottom line that Paul is saying. God's not interested in your work. I mean, all right, all right. You're looking at me like, but I'm really good at what I do, though. Facts. Y'all, y'all look incredible, stylish, you know, like very smart people. You might even be the goat at what you do. Nobody's ever done it like you before. But let's just do a little process check. Did you speak the world into being? Did you, like, literally take dust from the ground, breathe into it, and it became a living soul? Did you say, uh, let's see, uh, sun, ah, there. Stars, pop, there. Because if we didn't do that, then guess what? God doesn't need our help. He doesn't, he, he's not interested in finding co-workers, but children who trust him. And, and we come at best, we come, come as children who, who, who come to their parents with trust. And, and it's funny because it's like, you know what? I remember my, my daughter was young. She's like, I'll, I'll help you wash the dishes. And if anybody has had kids know that usually when they help, like it's, it's not actually that effective for getting the job done, right? But you're not letting them help because they're making a mess. <laughs> but you're letting them help because of the relationship, and because there's something about the connection that happens in the fact that they want to be part of the family concept, they want to be part of the community, they want to help. And that is what counts as righteousness, not actually the production and the productivity. Imagine me with the six-year-old being like, yeah, sorry, I'm going to have to let you go. Here's a pink slip. You just didn't get the job done. God credits us is righteous. And that's incredibly profound because it's by faith, not by what we do. And so that makes us kind of ask this question, well, what is faith? And in Hebrews 11.1, the author gives us a very clear definition. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith 
It says it's an assurance. It's a, it's a conviction. It's, it's, it's not an action that you do that is, is what justifies us before God. This is how, uh, like a modern definition is that faith is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. That is what the essence of faith is, confidence and trust. Now, this is different than just intellectual assent or, oh, yeah, I believe that, but not without acting on it. God's grace does not come to people who work harder than others, but to those who admit that they could never work hard enough. That's where the grace comes, because otherwise it's not grace at all. It's just you flexing your resume. So we have to either choose faith or choose pride. And my encouragement from the scriptures is to choose faith to crush your pride. There's something about that repositioning of recognizing that it's actually not about what I do, but who I am. That is very humbling, but at the same time, very freeing. And we're going to see just why Paul goes into that and and begins to break down. Why is that so freeing? Look at what he says next. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count sin, not count his sin, Romans 4, 6 through 8. So all of a sudden, as Paul is writing, he's, he's quoting these various authors in the Old Testament, and he turns his attention to Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2. And he says, look, here's more evidence of the blessing of God counting us as righteous and it not being based on what we do. Because look at what he says. Look at the notice, the verbs. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. You see, they're in the passive voice, which means the action is not springing forward from the one who is being who is justified. It is being given to that person by someone else because you you could be as impressive as you want. But you know what you can never create from within forgiveness for something you did for some to somebody else like. Someone forgiving you, you can forgive yourself for something that you did. But how can we determine if God is going to forgive us for what we've done? Or someone else is going to forgive us for what we've done? No amount of our intelligence or determination could ever do that. Forgiveness, redemption, these are things that come from God. And I know on a personal level, because this is what happened to me. Because prior to this point, I was one of those workaholic, self-righteous people that just thought I didn't need God, I didn't need faith because I was good enough. Look at the resume. Second in my class, National Honor Society. What? Like, Ivy League graduate, don't mess with me. Like, I'm good. But then God (laughs) showed me my sin through other people, telling me, like, yo, you're no better than other guys. In fact, you're worse because you think you're better than them. And once I'm in a scenario where like, I hurt people and I did it on, like, just because I was selfish, like, where's, where, do, where do you go from that? And all of a sudden, I realized the resume didn't matter. The accolades didn't matter. There was something that was keeping me, that was separating me from God, 
and from other people that I could not control or do anything about. And that was when I got introduced to the grace of God and his forgiveness and the fact that he offers that for those who believe. And see, when we think about it, it is this type of challenge that often is why we live in fear from people seeing all of who we are. Because if my identity is based on what I do, and then people see that I'm not all the Instagram posts claim that I am, that I'm only giving people selected highlights. What happens when they see the whole thing? If your salvation is based on something you can earn, then it is also something you can lose. If your salvation is something you earn, then that means it's also something you can lose. Praise God that it's not based on my work. Amen. Paul understands that. So look at what he goes on to write. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So as Paul continues on in this argument and his, and his teaching, he explains this is why it depends on faith. So it can be for grace. And then it goes, so, so here's what we're trying to say. Where there is faith, we don't need to be afraid of our performance because our acceptance depends on God's performance, not on us. And that's good news. I don't have to keep clocking in and clocking out and feeling like, okay, I had a good week. I had a bad week. I got my devotional time in this week. I didn't because it was busy. Like, Faith allows us to experience God and be the people he made us to be without fear of rejection. And guess what? Once I get that sense of confidence and acceptance with God, now I can be myself in front of other people even more. Because I realize that their rejection doesn't determine who I am. And that's good news. If that's so good, then why is it so hard for us to accept? Like, there doesn't seem to be a downside. And this is why Paul brings up Abraham as an example. Because if we look at his life, then you see the challenge of why this is so difficult for us. Some of us are like Abraham. I remember that song. Father Abraham had many sons, and many sons had... Uh, the Abraham, yeah. Uh, the kid is like, yo, that's my jam. That's my jam. <laughs> so who is Abraham? Abraham appears uh, in the book of Genesis, way back in the beginning of the text. But before we get to Abraham in chapter 12, what oftentimes people don't get the connection with chapter 11. So I'm just going to take a little bit of a detour there. Because in Genesis chapter 11, we see kind of the, the, the pinnacle of humans trying to work for their own sense of righteousness with God. Uh, it's where we get the Tower of Babel incident, where they literally say, let's build this tower to make a name for ourselves. Let's stack our resumes literally to the skies, and we can connect with God. And God's like, they're, not, they're doing the actual opposite of what I wanted to do, which is to go and spread the earth with my glory. But now, instead of trying to be about my agenda, they're about their agenda. So I'm going to confuse the languages, and I'm going to start all over again. And so look at what happens in Genesis 12. It starts with this genealogy of Abe's, Abraham's 
uh, ancestor, Shem. And it goes from Shem all the way to Abraham. You go, well, why is this? Why are they going why all of a sudden from Tower of Babel to genealogy? Well, Shem in Hebrew means name. So what God is doing here is literally saying, y'all trying to make a name for yourself, but guess what? I'm going to make a name for myself through you, Abraham. And so then in order to make that case even stronger, he calls Abraham and he says, go to a place that I'm going to tell you to go and I will make your name great. I will be the one to make your name great. And the going was essential because at that point, people attached their sense of value and worth from who their tribe was, where their land was. And so he's saying, go away from all the things so that at the end of the day, when your life is blessed, nobody else can get the glory but me. Sometimes, parenthetically, God will cause you to go and lose all sense of the comfort and the esteems and the assets that you have in order to prove a point that it's him working in your life and not you. Don't neglect and reject that calling because God is actually going to do something way more and beyond. But in any case, so chapter 12, he says, go, I'm going to make a name for you. And that literally meant I'm going to make you a father. Now, that was an issue because to this point, his wife, Sarah, who will become Sarah, was barren. They had no kids. So after that first connection, uh, they... Then God reveals himself again in Genesis chapter 15. And he had to reveal himself again because things got messy. They tried to take matters in their own hands and try to get Abraham to have a child through uh, Hagar. And it just gets really messy because that wasn't the child of promise. But because Sarah was barren, they thought this is the way we're going to help God out. We always get in trouble when we try to help God out. And so 25 years later, God reaffirms the promise And and eventually in chapter 21, Isaac is born in their old age. (laughs) So look at what, so so here's the, when I say old age, I mean old age. Like Sarah was 90, y'all. Abraham was 99. And the point of him, of Paul looking at their lives is to say, you can choose faith over fear. Abraham's fear was fear man, I don't know how this is going to work. I don't know if I'm going to actually be able to get these dreams to happen. But God intervenes and does this thing that is miraculous and incredible. And so Paul comments on that when he says, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Isn't that funny? It's like, Paul's like, just like, yo, he was as good as dead. Like, it was not, like, he was shooting blanks. Like, this is 99, y'all. There's humor in this. He's like, literally, like saying they could not do this on their own. But no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Because he believed at the age of 90, I mean, 25 years had gone by since when God first made the promise. They are now 99 and 90 years old. And this was not immaculate conception. So that meant they had to have the faith to be like, well, we're going to try again. We're going to try again. We're going to try again. 
And one of the ways that pride and fear get in the way is that some of us think that we can rely on our own intellect and our situation analysis in order to solve our own problems. Yeah, we do. We think that, okay, I can just kind of make this work. This is what they did with Hagar with that detour. Now, the other extreme is that there are those of us who look for inspiration anywhere and everywhere. Have y'all noticed like now all of a sudden people talk about what the universe did for them? I'm just going to, I don't mean to be offensive, but I just kind of had to look up. The de- this is the definition of universe. All existing matter in space considered as a whole. Rocks, trees, the sun, moon. The universe doesn't care about you because the universe doesn't have a sense of consciousness. It's, it's just a collection of inanimate things or sentient beings. Mantras, minerals, makeshift belief systems. It does, it's not the fact that we believe sincerely that makes the difference. It's what we actually believe in. God cares about you, created the world and you in it. And so there is, it is important that we, we look at and dissect the aspect of faith. It's not just enough to just say, I believe. It's like, well, what is the efficacy of that which with you believe? This is how Tim Keller put it. It's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. Yeah, sometimes our faith might be weak. I'm not saying that my faith is stronger than somebody else's and I need to, because that would still be something I can boast in. But it's the object of the faith. That actually makes the difference. The realness and and the reality was that Abraham had experience in an encounter with the living God in the midst of people who worshiped and believed in other idols. This this was not just like a blank slate. Like Abraham's own people worshiped different gods and God revealed to him the true God in the midst of that and said, I am going to do something new and unique and different and real in your life. Do I have the faith to believe that this God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the God who revealed himself is the one who wants to have a connection with me that this God is the object of my faith? Because otherwise I'm just putting faith in that which I choose. Faith... Faith itself has no power, but it's because of the one in whom we place the faith. And the faith is based on God's word. When it's, when it's doing that, then we recognize that it's transformational because Abraham did not arbitrarily or without any basis put faith in God. He had seen God work in his life over those years from the time that he called them to the time that that 25 years, because even though they didn't have a child, what they did have was an extended sense of the purpose he saw living in God's, um, living out God's calling in him with favor, with his, in his work, in his vocation, in their relationships. They saw God at work. Similarly, we must also realize that our faith is based on the solid reality of God's word in scripture and in the living word, Jesus Christ. And when we allow him to capture our hearts, then that type of faith is living and active. One quick last thing on this is faith is not opposed to facts. There's been this false dichotomy in our society that I have to choose between either faith or reason. And let me just debunk that real quick with a couple thoughts. Remember that, first of all, the definition of faith is trust 
and confidence in a person or a thing. So that does not at all oppose reason. But the other part that is is a subtle swap that happens is that really we've not rejected faith. We've just swapped out who we trust. Instead of trusting in a God who created everything, we trust in ourselves and our ability to understand things. Because if we look back at those who were the kind of founders or major contributors of scientific inquiry and discovery, we see that they were doing it as a spiritual practice. Go back and look at the writings of Isaac, uh, Isaac Newton or Albert Einstein or any of these folks who were, you know, just they, they were just trying to figure out, yo, like God is dope. How did he do it? Not like somehow what I'm discovering is causing me to question my faith. That didn't even come up. But now people will try to use any data point to disprove faith and pretend it's because of a commitment to truth. But if you listen closely enough, you'll recognize that for a whole lot of reasons that we don't have time to get into, that there's a predisposition toward the enterprise of faith itself because people associate it with bad acts from powerful people and say, because I don't want that to be true, then let's lean into this non-theistic explanation of reality. And that's really what's at work. But you know what? You don't got to take my word for it. One of the most... um, well-known and established uh, atheist philosophers. His name is Thomas Nagel. He's kind of like the Jordan of atheistic philosophers. This is what he said. Listen to this. I want atheism to be true and am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. Think about that. That has nothing to do with logic. That is a built-in bias against that which he doesn't want to be true. That sounds a whole lot like just faith to me. It's not faith against facts, but we do choose faith to interpret facts. What is the meaning behind this fact? And then lastly, on this point, Hebrews eleven six 6 says, and without faith, it's impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who diligently seek him. He must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. That's what it takes to have that relationship with God. And that type of faith goes and extends over our feelings. As I was preparing for this yesterday, I was just, you know, on Facebook at different points, and I saw a friend of mine named Kina, and I saw uh, her story that she posted on Facebook about, uh, you know, once she took a screenshot of a GoFundMe, I didn't know that she had these significant medical challenges her and her you know husband or her her husband was dealing with 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 it with her but in the post this is what she said I'm just going to read this 33 she turned 33 this year this was one of the hardest years of my life it was the year past traumas past traumas caught up with my body the year I had to say no to almost every work and ministry opportunity because of chronic pain. The year finances dwindled enough for us to have to ask 
for help. The year I seriously questioned God's existence and the validity of my faith. The year I endured my third surgery in heartbreaking medical news. The year I struggled terribly with maintaining friendships. The year panic attacks became a regular thing. The year my faith and my prayers were met with a deafening silence. The year I thought for sure I was going to die and that God wants to kill me. The the year I sat in mystery and deep darkness. That's heavy. And some of you are here or are watching online and you can relate and you're like, yes, that's been my year too. And look at else what she says. It was also the year I was carried by my family, by my friends, and by my church. It was the year many of you, dear social media friends, encouraged me to start a GoFundMe for my medical debt, through which you eagerly and joyfully provided for us. It was, it was the year I was forced to rest and rest and rest some more. It was the year God did answer prayer, lots of prayer giving John, her husband, an amazing job, me, a trauma-informed therapist, and us a support system who truly loves and believes the best about us. It was the year I was brought closer to something I've longed to know in my bones. I am loved apart from what I contribute. Yeah. I am embraced even in my weakness, especially in my weakness. I am delighted in for who I am and not just what I can do. Those angry voices in my head, those haunting regrets in my nightmares, those bleeding wounds, they dissipate for a moment in the light of all God has done in the last 12 months to help me believe I'm lovable and loved. Amen, Kina. You see the contrast. You see the transformation. Yeah, let's praise God for that. Because what she's talking about is that somehow because I was put in a position to not be able to do anything for myself, including cover my own bills, that that was how I saw that God's grace was sufficient and that him, me trusting him was enough. It was enough. And that meant that that she chose faith over her feelings because it would have been very easy in that moment to just throw in the towel and just say, "Um, you know what, this is it for me. This stuff can't be true, can't be real. But that's not what she chose. Few words are more important than faith because it's an attitude and it's a willingness to receive. John Calvin likens faith to open hands. Believing means that we stretch out our arms and open our hands to receive the gift God wants to give to us. We can take no credit for accepting a gift, nor can we take any credit for our faith. And in our achievement-obsessed world, giving faith its necessary and central place in our lives is hard. We are tempted to ground our relationship to God in what we do and think that doing is so impressive that God will be forced to bless us. But eventually we find ourselves in a place where we can't do. We run out of gas. And like Kina, at a place where it's like, I can't do it anymore. And all I could do was rest. And in doing so, we find ourselves that, wow, the whole time, God was just wanting to be there like a parent loving us, helping us with the dishes, not because that would justify our existence, but because that was the love that he had for us. Paul concludes with these words, but the words, it was counted to him 
were not written for his sake, but for our sake also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. You see, Abraham's story didn't end with the birth of Isaac, but when he was about 12 years old, God then told Abraham, all right, now I need you to go sacrifice that one that I promised, the one that you waited 25 years for, I need you to go on a mountain and sacrifice him. And Abraham went up the mountain and his son was like, hey, because they were used to doing a sacrifice. Hey, dad, where's, 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 the, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham said, God will provide. And as he went up and he tied his son up and, and, and raised the knife, thinking, we were later told in Hebrews, that God was going to raise him from the dead, God announces, stop, stop. There's a ram in a bush. God will provide the sacrifice. Abraham didn't do it. And how do we get access to that faith? Well, the amazing parallel that we see is that God as a father did not restrain the wrath that we deserve from landing on his son. His son also climbed up a mountain with wood that was meant for the sacrifice, but that wood was in the shape of a cross. And because he was nailed to that cross and because he died a sinless death, a death that we deserved because of our actions, because of our bad works, God took the righteousness in Christ's account and transferred it into our account and said that those who believe in him, I will count it as righteous. And so now we don't work so that we can make, be made right with God. We believe. And so therefore we work as an expression of that sense of worship. Well, in light of that, what do we do? Well, there's two challenges I want to put before you. I mean, it's pretty straightforward in light of the text and where Paul ends. The first is to say, maybe you're here and you have put your confidence in your relationship with God based on what you do for God. And you thought, yeah, maybe I grew up in a church environment, but I still kind of depended on myself. I'd ask that you would all stand with me as we just kind of make space for God in, in this time. If you're here and you've realized that, man, after hearing this, I have been putting my resume as the reason why I'm made right with God, then this is an opportunity to recognize, no, it's based on God's grace through faith. So I ask that if you would just bow your heads and close your eyes. And I just want to ask you that you would just slip up your hand if you say, I want to recognize that I trust God. I want to choose faith, not my work, to be justified by God. You want to put your faith in Jesus for the first time and not in your work, not in yourself. You want to trust Jesus to save you and not yourself. Would you just slip up your hand if that's you? I see those hands. Praise God. I see those hands. The second call is you recognize no, I have made that decision before, but I have slipped back into the obsession of work. I'm a workaholic, and I tend to depend on myself and not God. 
And I just want to experience God's grace in a recommitment to the fact that it is he who saves us and not we ourselves. If that's you, just slip your hand up. So yeah, I, I just, I recognize I, I need to reinvest in God's grace and mercy. I see those hands. So I'm going to ask you to do something as an act of faith and that you would just come up to the front, uh, Pastor Josh, if you raise your hand, and just as an acknowledgement to yourself and as a statement that this is a new beginning for you, that you will walk in a new way, no longer in bondage to this aspect of action, but instead trusting God by his grace and his mercy. So we just ask, you can just ask some person next to you to just excuse yourself and just come up to the front and uh, we'll make space for you right here in this front. If that was you, if you raised your hand earlier, yeah, if you're up at the top, we'll make time. You can just come down the steps. This is important because we need to make room and space for God to justify us based on grace and not work because we will run out of gas, y'all. Eventually, that treadmill will grind us down and we will be tired. So this is an opportunity to just recognize I'm going to trust in God's grace. Thank you, sister, for coming up. Others, if you raise that hand, you can just, we'll make time for you to come forward. We just want to pray with you and we just want to support you in that journey Pastor Josh will connect with you for a next step. Is there another? Is there another? The beautiful thing is that faith is the work. And yet it's a work that God gives us the ability to have. He is the one that regenerates our hearts. He is the one that draws us to himself. If you're feeling that tug and that pull, now is the time. Well, let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for the reminder that we are yours not based on what we do, but because of who we are. Lord, help us to believe and to trust in you for our salvation, for our justification, for our righteousness. And we'll be so careful to give you all the credit. Lord, for these ones that made decisions, who raised their hand or who didn't raise their hand, God, you know, you see, we just ask that you would give them a sense of peace, a peace that transcends all understanding and knowing that you are the one who count to us as righteous. What Jesus did on our behalf. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you all for this time. Um, Pastor Josh is going to lead folks um, to kind of just have some follow-up instruction over there, and you can be part of that. And uh, thank you all for the time. You got, uh, Mark, you coming? All right, cool. You can stay where you are. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. 
You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at BridgeChurchNYC. Our website is BridgeChurchNYC.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.